You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. I'm joined today on HeadX by Kate Gilpin. And Kate works for a not-for-profit organisation, Welcoming Australia. As the coordinator for their group within that that broader organisation called Welcoming Universities. And Welcoming Australia is an organisation that works towards the creation of an Australia where people of all backgrounds have an opportunity to belong, contribute and thrive. And as coordinator for Welcoming Universities, Kate has recognised the complexity of the university experience for its students and staff who identify as members of equity or equity-like groups. She's seen how her experience of universities, both as a student and as a staff member, has been, as we'll hear in a little while, a largely positive experience. But she believes that that's likely because of her identity and believes this kind of inequity is that's experienced by others without that sort of identity is profoundly unfair. Welcoming Universities is deeply committed to working with with all Australian universities to make them much more equitable, inclusive and supportive places for everyone. What a fine mission to have and what a great guest you make for us this early in 2024 on the HeadX podcast. Kate, a very warm welcome to HeadX. Thank you very much, Martin. Lovely to be here. That's that's great to hear. And look, I I love starting all of my HeadX podcast with guests. You're a co-host with me today, but to to understand the personal story that lies behind how they get to be doing what they're doing in the sector. Um, and I know I know from knowing you for a little while, for quite some time now, that you grew up with an insight into universities, and that this has led you to take a really strong interest in them in them. And maybe has some explanation to why and how you find yourself and the role you now perform. Just summarise that personal story about Kate Gilpin and universities. Sure. Um, So my uh, university story is lifelong. Um, I literally grew up on university campuses. My mum was an academic or is an academic really because I don't actually think academics really retire ever. Um, and she worked at QT throughout my childhood and teen years. And so I literally spent every school holidays on the Gardens Point campus and many evenings attending landscape architecture lectures. And when she went to work at UQ and then UTAS, I spent a lot of time at both those universities as well. Um, My mum loved working in universities and so spent a lot of her time at work and uh, and so I went along for the ride with that. Um, both my parents are from a regional area and for them to go to university was a big deal. They were first in family, uh, you know, had to move from the regions. There were many barriers they faced to access higher education. Um, and so they always instilled in my sister and I the fact that university education had changed their lives for the better. It had given them opportunities they never would have had if they had not uh, been able to pursue that level of education. Um, And so I developed a kind of deep love of universities from a young age because because they had had that transformational experience. Um, 
And so after I finished school, I I had the very big privilege of being able to kind of faff around a bit and try some different things and study some things that I didn't want to finish and work and travel. Um, and when I was 20, I went and did a Bachelor of Creative Industries at QUT, and that was purely for the joy of study. Um, I studied music and writing and literature, and then I did a Master's in Arts and Creative Industries Management and subsequently have done two graduate certificates in research and in human services. So I have loved study and loved education. Um, and I then went on to work in universities for a long time, uh, mainly in student support roles, uh, particularly with international students and then in student events and programming, uh, university engagement, and I've done a lot of sessional work. So I love, I've loved universities for a long time and been involved with them for a long time. Um, but I have to say that beginning my work with Welcoming Australia and particularly Welcoming Universities as an initiative uh, has really opened my eyes. The scales have fallen from my eyes around what universities are and what barriers there are for many people in accessing higher education. And I think they are made for people like me who was from, I'm a white woman from a rising middle-class family with educated higher educated parents and I got to live at home while I studied at university and I didn't have to make decisions about whether to feed myself or whether to catch the bus to uni or buy textbooks. And so uni was hard in the sense that it intellectually stimulated me and moved me forward in that way and life is hard so there were hard bits obviously, break up with boyfriends and things like that. But I didn't have those barriers that people have around feeling safe on campus, feeling like it was somewhere that I'm allowed to be, feeling like uh, I had to make those decisions about whether I could eat or whether I could get to university. Those are the things that I think are, are still part of the university experience for many, many people. And they're the reason a lot of people don't go to university, I believe. Well, there, um, that started as a very bright and optimistic story and has taken us into a really challenging place, Kate, of, of yeah. a real big challenge for this fantastic transformational experience that you've you've seen and, and many of us recognise and just how we make that available to everybody in our society in a, in a way that, that everyone can then reflect on it with the same pride and... and and joy that you have. So tell us more about welcoming universities then. And, you know, what what is this um, organisation and, and where does it fit in within the broader organisation of welcoming Australia? I, I hadn't encountered either welcoming universities or welcoming Australia very much before setting up this, this interview with you. And I imagine many listeners to this podcast in the sector would benefit from understanding more about what are the, what is this organisation and what is welcoming universities within it? Sure. So uh, I'll start with telling you a little bit about Welcoming Australia first. It is an organisation that was started about eleven years ago. Initially, it was it was an Adelaide based um, program initiative, grassroots organisation, um, and the purpose of Welcoming Australia is to cultivate a culture of welcome and to advance an Australia where people of all backgrounds have an equal opportunity to belong, contribute and thrive. That's our that's our mission. 
Um, and our focus is really on working with culturally and linguistically diverse, culturally and racially marginalised communities to support welcoming, inclusion and belonging. Uh, we have a number of initiatives that sit under the Welcoming Australia umbrella. So there's Welcoming Cities, which has been around for about seven years, which is our work with local governments. Um, welcoming Clubs, which is our work with sporting clubs and codes, but also other recreational clubs. Welcoming Universities, which I'm talking to you about today, and Welcoming Workplaces. And for all of them, we have that foundational goal of creating creating spaces across Australia where everybody can belong, contribute and thrive. Um, we're not a settlement agency. We're not an advocacy body. We're not, uh, we don't run programs. We network, we share information, we support work. Um, we create connections. We showcase and celebrate great best practice. And we have standards and accreditation for the benchmarking of this work within those different initiatives. We also have a First Nations first approach to all the work that we do, understanding that unless we are First Nations people, unless you are a First Nations person in this place, everybody here has a migrant history. And we have to recognise that and respect that and reckon with that in the work that we do. So Welcoming Universities is a relatively new initiative for Welcoming Australia. It began to slowly come to life about two years ago and I've been with the organisation about 12 months now. Um, it is a network to inspire and support Australian university, universities to develop that culture and practice of welcoming, inclusion and belonging within the institutions for students, staff and the wider community. Um, we see that many universities at are, are at the leading edge of research and debate and thought leadership around ideas of population, migration, social cohesion, social inclusion, economic participation, diversity, all of those wonderful, important areas, but often lack the frameworks and the resources to apply that internally and to practice that with all their stakeholders. So building on the work that we've done in the city space through Welcoming Cities, we have developed the Welcoming Universities Initiative to build that, build that framework, but also uh, offer the opportunity for universities to benchmark their work in this space um, and embed that cultural diversity inclusion across the institution and hopefully across the sector as a whole as well. What a great initiative. It um, sounds fantastic when you describe it like that. And it, it sort of probes me to try and understand a little bit more about then what's your approach within welcoming universities and how, how does that approach work in practice? What do you do? So it's a really uh, distinct way of working, I believe. It was a bit of a surprise to me when I started here because I told you the things we don't do and what we do do is quite interesting. We have a network currently of eight universities and we meet regularly to check in and talk about what's happening within the institution, what, what complexities they're facing around cultural diversity and inclusion work, around creating belonging for students and staff and community. Um, we also regularly have guest speakers on particular topics. We've got a meeting in a couple of weeks and we have Katie Bishop from Headspace, who runs the university support program there, coming to talk about the programs they run around mental health support and training uh, for universities um, which is an issue that is peaking at the moment and being being recognised more and more widely as as something that that universities need to get on the front foot around mental health support for students, 
all students, but, but um, particularly students who, who identify with, with equity groups as well. Um, we do partnership development. So we're currently supporting partnership programs for La Trobe University Bendigo campus in partnership with Bendigo City Council and the University of Wollongong and Wollongong City Council to develop holistic international student support programs, bringing both together the city, the, the council and the services offered in that LGA with the university as well. And, and throughout that student life cycle. So not just for orientation week when students arrive, but throughout their, their time studying in an area um, and in a region, because these are, these are regional universities. Uh, we do research and development. So my colleague Olga Cherniak and I are currently undertaking research on the experiences of international students studying at Australian universities in a post-COVID climate. So we are... Um, not aligned with any particular university for this research. We're looking at, at the general experience in regards to cost of living, accommodation, and social support and connections. And then we celebrate success. So we um, we produce a publication each year to, called Stories of Welcome, where we share the stories of our initiatives. And we have a symposium every year where we where we do this as well and, and, and share stories on our social and, and general media as well. But our big piece that I have finally got to the end point now of being ready to um, put out for public consulta consultation is our draft standard. So that is a benchmarking framework for universities to be able to benchmark their work in the cultural diversity, inclusion and belonging space to become accredited as welcoming universities if, if that's something they seek. Uh, I think the thing that makes us different in that space and what I've been really interested in, I've been thinking a lot about this, is it's not about planning for what you will do to become a welcoming university. It's about reflecting on what you are doing and then using that benchmarking process to say, oh, we're not doing a lot in this area, maybe, and through the network, learning other ways to respond to need. So it's a really great resource, even if a university chooses to never become accredited, that's absolutely fine. It's a resource to see how to do this work well. Yeah. Sounds like a classic benchmarking methodology that's um, been widely applied in other sectors. And what a great way of applying it in our sector. And look, you say you've been busy working on that standard for a while. We We've got a federal education minister here in Australia who's been busy much of the last year or so through Mary O'Kane and uh, Universities Accords, preparing a Universities Accord final report, which the whole sector is waiting with bated breath to um, to receive and understand and respond to. But you, you'll have made some observations, I'm sure, while you've been developing welcoming universities and the network that you're leading and a part of, I'm sure, is giving you reactions to that parallel debate. What, what do you feel that you personally and that welcoming universities and the network feels about the, the overall focus and direction of this major piece of policy review in Australia? And maybe tell us what you both hope for when we find the final report and perhaps also fear that we might find upon its release as it impacts upon the issues of welcoming universities. I won't speak for anyone else in our network. I will only speak for myself and for the organisation or the initiative that I, I coordinate. Look, reading the interim report and a lot of the commentary about the accord 
I see a lot that is good in the priority actions and recommendations. Um, I think the efforts to support certain equity groups is commendable and the focus on First Nations higher educational access and the embedding of First Nations knowledge and history as being key in that, in that report was, I think, a very positive step. I do have some concerns. I think the consultation process was quite lacking for the accord process. Um, I believe that that three-week timeframe for submissions to the accord fell in mid-semester when a lot of students and organisations, student organisations and student groups would have been in the midst of assessment. And I feel that the student voice is continuously con continually missing from these conversations and should have been prioritised when we're seeing declining numbers of young people going to university. And I think that is key. We need to know why. This is what the sector is based on. I feel that the designation of four distinct equity groups being the area of, of areas of focus is limiting. And it's, it, to me, doesn't present as an intersectional approach uh, and doesn't look at the layered experiences of disadvantage that many students and staff experience within university spaces. And I also have deep concerns about this discussion in regards to international students. There is the stated intention that international education is to be viewed, I'm quoting this, less as an industry and more as a crucial element of soft diplomacy, regional prosperity and development. And I'd like to know what that actually means. Um, because same time as saying this, we there's talk about an additional levy on international students and I think that's deeply problematic. Overall, that issue of representation on the panel as well, there was no student representation on the panel and I think that's questionable. My fear, I'll put my fear first and end with some hope. My fear is that the accord will not create significant change but instead lead to much the same in terms of the systems and approaches and accountability and representation within universities. My hope is that, that it is student-centred and that international students' needs and equity needs are considered as part of a student-centred approach, uh, that there is a reckoning with the precarious employment of university staff because that was missing from the discussion also, I feel, and that universities are required to become responsive to what students and what society needs, and that there is more diversity, all kinds of diversity within the university sector. Thank you for telling us what you think, Kate. Frank, an open dialogue is vitally important and giving voice to all groups and taking a broad, particularly a broad international view is so critical. That's been a big feature of some of my own commentary on the Accord through the course of 2023. Um, just a bit of a diversion at that point. You've mentioned lots, lots. You've made lots of references there and so far to international students. I, I don't know if organisations like welcoming universities here in Australia are replicated elsewhere in the world and are doing similar work because I think the issues of um, the student experience and particularly the extent to which different nations are welcoming of international students right now. I read some worrying things about barriers and reductions and um, hindrances to study in the UK and in Canada and, and in other places. 
is welcoming universities symptomatic of us being particularly focused on this issue and are there other groups in the world that are doing things like you're doing or what would your comment be on how what what you've described so far sits in a global context i don't know of anything or very similar to the welcoming universities model anywhere else in in the university space there's certainly uh, other work similar to to the work that welcoming australia does in other sectors um but i don't know of anything specific to the university space there is the universities universities of sanctuary initiative out of the uk which is focused on accrediting and promoting universities that are places of welcome for forcibly displaced people so refugees and asylum seekers um but but that's quite distinct distinctly focused on that forcibly displaced experience and then there's obviously lots of great examples of individual universities in Australia and overseas running programs of inclusion and and support um there's some really incredible stuff in the US around providing safe culturally safe spaces for diverse students and I've heard of the uh, Santa Barbara College uh, runs a program for single mothers or young mothers who are from culturally diverse backgrounds there are spaces for them to use so that they can study and be mothers simultaneously there's there's infrastructure to support that which is culturally specific as well uh, so there's some fantastic initiatives but I haven't heard of this kind of sector-wide approach before and the desire to bring universities together to learn from each other and partner and connect and and to hopefully make change across the sector okay well good to know that um even though we might have some acute issues to continuously deal with and still deal with and give more attention to in australia that we might be better geared up or differently geared up than other people are in being able to make those responses um just just taking the conversation in a slightly different way i mean as we think about issues like this around the world what one issue that i know has had a lot of attention in university systems around the world has been the exposure of students and staff in global universities to issues of sexual harassment sexual discrimination i think this has been an area that during the accord consultation process last year and how such matters were being dealt with by australian universities got quite a bit of ministerial attention maybe expressions of frustration with universities accusations of universities lack of of action maybe some some infighting and contention between universities with each other and universities and the system um within their representative groups as well we talked about honest and open conversations do, do you believe we're being sufficiently honest and open about how we are doing with regard to managing and responding to issues of sexual harassment and discrimination in australian universities and are there areas if if you do think we're not doing enough that we think we need to do that you think we need to do more? I'll continue my direct approach, Martin, in this conversation. Uh, look, the truth for me is that universities are a part of society, and the issue of sexual violence and violence against women generally is an absolute stain in this country. It probably always has been, and we're finally having conversations about it. So I think there is a society-wide issue, to be honest, and, and universities are a microcosm of this. 
but until there are people in positions of power willing to face this and willing to institute the recommendations made by the Human Rights Commission seven years ago now to universities, I don't know how things will change. I don't think they were particularly revolutionary ideas from the Human Rights Commission. They were they were to have transparency within universities about the rates of sexual assault and sexual violence on campus, to have better reporting processes, safer reporting processes for victims, to have training for staff and students, to have quality counselling and support services, and for the implementation of these measures to be monitored. There, but there was no requirement to monitor the implementation of these issues put to university. So I don't know if there's been any change, to be honest, but by the reportage last year and the conversations in that university's accord process, it doesn't seem that much has changed since the Human Rights Commission released that report seven years ago. Thanks for your continuing honesty and openness <laughs> and your clear and direct call for more action. Um <laughs> Going beyond the gender issues, because there are a variety of, as you say, quite importantly, intersectional issues at play here that we all need to understand better. But but perhaps before addressing the issues of intersectionality, the, the issues of race and class discrimination um, have also featured prominently in in debates and discussions recently in, in, as, as some particular issues that the sector continues to face both here and, and globally. Uh, how well do you feel the sector measures up in those areas and Australia is doing globally in, in, in a global comparative sense amongst um, global universities? Are we getting on top of race and class discrimination issues any better than we are sexual discrimination and harassment and assault issues? My knowledge of how this is being in internationally uh, looked at is not is not comprehensive to be honest so I'm not sure on a global scale how we measure up obviously my area of focus within my work is with culturally and racially marginalized and culturally and linguistically diverse communities and so I am probably deeply cynical and deeply aware of the issues within the work that's being done in this space and um, and so I think I probably have a negative lens right now. Uh, I I think, as I discussed before, my experience of universities and working in universities for a long time was so blinkered because of my own privilege and my own my own opportunities, my own advantages. Um, and now that I have been working in this space for not very long, for twelve months, but but reading a lot more and engaging a lot more with the experience of people who are uh, culturally and racially marginalised or diverse and people who are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, I see how complex accessing education is and I don't think that we are doing enough. I think there's, there's conversations happening, but I actually don't think we're listening to the people who are experiencing this. And I think part of that is... University leadership is not reflective of the white, of the communities that they represent. So, you know, a large portion of our student population is from culturally <laughs> culturally diverse diverse backgrounds, and yet we don't see that represented in the in the university leadership. And I think that's that whole. It's a very basic 
discussion in this space in the in the work that we do but you can't be what you can't see is is the first port of call we need to hear more about the about people who come from similar backgrounds and are in positions of leadership who have had success who are from low socioeconomic backgrounds and have had success i i just listened to the podcast on conversations with richard feidler last week with dr liz allen from the anu and her experience of trying to get to university and trying to get to the opportunities that university could offer her was just so filled with barriers. And we need to be telling those stories all the time so that people in positions of power can see what the experience is genuinely like, what it actually is like, because most of them are people like me who haven't had those barriers. I've started using the term intersectionally advantaged because that's how I feel I am. I have I was intersectionally advantaged in my experience of university. Uh, and I think I think it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to face their privilege because life is still hard even when you're privileged. But it's much, much harder if you don't have those advantages and those privileges. Well, what a what a fascinating sort of summary of um, the combination of of equity and and diversity and inclusion issues and how they do intersect. And your call for us all to tell more stories about people that haven't had the privilege that you're describing. And look, that's a great segue there, Kate, to um, the fact that the the podcast has you as a co-host, and you're now going to share with us the interview that you've conducted with Muhammad, a student from Victoria, with his own very um, very interesting lived experience of the extent to which we provide a welcome in, in our universities. Just before I hand over you to to relay that interview with Muhammad, can you tell us the background to his the, the background to his his story and why you've chosen him for this interview? Sure. So uh, Muhammad is an incredible young person and he has just finished his qualification at the University of Melbourne. And I'll let him tell his story about where he's come from and how he came to live in Melbourne and study at the University of Melbourne. But uh, the reason I came across Muhammad and his work is because he was in 2021 and in 2023 the president of the People of Colour Department at the University of Melbourne Student Union. And they produce an incredible report each year that looks at racism at the University of Melbourne through a series of, of surveys with, with students there who, who answer questions about their experiences of racism or when they have. So it's not only for students who are people of colour, but for, uh, for students who are not people of colour to identify when they've seen, seen racism on campus. And... Muhammad and his colleagues through the through the student union have developed this excellent piece of work and he is really passionate about talking about the experiences of racism that students have so that we can make change so that universities can shift and see how they can be more inclusive and make university a safer uh, happier place for for all students. Well that's sounding like quite a billing I can't wait to hear more about what happened when you interviewed Mohammed? And so thanks for, for bringing him to the HeadX podcast. I have Mohammed Omar here to talk to us about his experience as the People of Colour Department Officer for the University of Melbourne Student Union. Um, 
Muhammad has just finished his undergraduate degree in chemical engineering at University of Melbourne and is now doing a master's. So I'd like to start by just you telling me a little bit about your story and how you came to study at the University of Melbourne and then get involved in uh, the student union and the, and the people of colour department there. So I came to Melbourne in 2019 from overseas uh, in Abu Dhabi. Um, I'm originally from Sudan, and so it was a very big move for me. I also started um, getting involved with uh, the student union and student politics in general and the people of color department. Um, I went to like one of the collectives, so they have weekly collectives on campus to just um, provide like a social space and for students to meet each other with. And so um, one of my friends heard about it and we went together and that was kind of my first experience. I saw um, people who looked like me, people who shared my culture, um, just kind of like sharing food, having a good time, you know, chatting to each other in a safe space for us. And it's something that really kind of, I still remember that first moment that I walked into um, the, the room and I was just like taken aback by how comfortable I immediately felt and how um, you know, how excited I was to kind of explore this new uh, part of the university, part of student life. And from then I met the officers at the time and I kept going to the weekly events and I went to um, other activities that they had as well. Um, I went to their magazine launch um, as well in 2019. And I think that's when I was kind of like, thinking I want to be more involved with this um, in the years coming. And can you share a little bit about the work you did at the People of Colour Department and what it is and why it was created and a little bit yeah. of the background on that and then outline some of the work that you did, particularly the racism at University of Melbourne report. That would be So the history of the other department is that it's, um, it started, it, it's the youngest department at the University of Melbourne Student Union and it was, its main mission and goal is to advocate, support, and create safe spaces for students of color on campus um, and to essentially operate out of the University of Melbourne Student Union, not as a club, but as a, I would say, as an advocate and a service provider as well. It brings students in to kind of speak about a topic that they are interested in or that they have developed a sort of in-depth uh, knowledge about. So for example, let's say intersectional feminism or racism in AI or um, racism in the justice system, for example. So these are sort of specific topics that um, people might want to learn more about. And it's 100% student-led, so just regular students from um, our collectives and on campus can fund them and we compensate them for their time, for example. And yeah, that's kind of like what we do. And in terms of the, the advocacy side of things and the racism report, it's kind of, I'd say it's, I'd say 30% of our department. Um, our main job is at the end of the day to advocate for students of color on campus and to focus um, solely on racism on campus and how racial discrimination can manifest um, in different spaces. And so in 2021, um, I wrote and published the first racism at Unimob report because halfway throughout my term, I noticed that a lot of students had experienced some sort of um, you know, racial marginalization on campus, and there was no actual avenue for them to get support. There was no avenue for them to get their stories documented. 
even if it's something that can't be resolved or something that you know is beyond their control um that's definitely something that i thought that this is something that we should be taking lead on and taking charge because the university was not even talking about it at the time there was no actual um, acknowledgement of racism on campus uh, back then and so i created the survey which was a very pilot survey i call it just based on what i've been hearing and my very 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 limited knowledge as a 21 year old on how racism manifests in a systemic way on campus um, but the main aim was to just collect students' experiences and kind of have them in a document that will hopefully um, stand the test of time. It's partly the drive for me to go ahead and ask for more from the university because it's beyond just documenting students' experiences that there is a lack of acknowledgement of racism on campus. There's a lack of anti-racism training. There's a lack of um, actual cultural diversity in the subject material. There's a lack of um, like inclusive mental health services. And you know, I tried to reach out to the university at that time and got a meeting with one of the diversity and inclusion um, chairs. From that, I kind of asked them to um, include the next officers in the work, if there is going to be any work, or um, to kind of discuss with them how they can, how we can progress from this and how we can um, implement solutions for students on campus. After that, the university just, you know, for a year, they sidelined the officer that came after me, which was Hiba. Um, she reached out multiple times and she was either ignored, um, you know, not really responded to. They just kind of pushed it aside and pushed it under the rug. And it was from there on that I kind of realized that there is no, essentially working with the university because there is no, there's no actual sense of urgency that the university had, at least for us, because that's how it looked like. You know, we presented a report with horrible, horrific experiences of racism that students had on campus. And the response from them was just, you know, we'll deal with it. We'll have something in place. We're going to work on it. Um, but there was no actual collaboration. There was no um, wanting to do this work with us. and. You know, as students, as student representatives, it was just very disheartening because we're the ones who have the actual connection with students. And then being told by university staff members who, whose job it is to take care of students, to make, to make sure that our education is not compromised, this isn't a priority right now, and that this is something that ignore you on, or like we're gonna keep postponing and we're gonna um, do it what is convenient for us. After that, the next year we ran um, the, se uh, the second racism at Unimob survey to gather more data and kind of see if there are any changes. Um, we kind of, yeah, just to collect more responses and see how things are. Um, same results, you know, of just same experiences of, you know, students facing racial marginalization on campus in many different ways. Um, you know, I speak quite generally now, but it's just, it's really like opening a can of worms because there are so many situations and instances I can't, like even, you know, people in using university services, for example, like the student like course planning services or the mental health services, you know, there's an experience in every sort of university setting. You know, it's quite upsetting to see um, that there's actually no safe space for students on campus. Um, there's nowhere that they can just go and 
think that oh, I won't be I won't be targeted or racially marginalized or um, feel unsafe just because of who I am or what my background is. Education is a right at the end of the day, and it's something that people generally agree on. And the the responsibilities of institutions like the University of Melbourne, like other universities, is to provide that in an environment that's free from racism and discrimination. And why is that not the case right now? Why does it have to be that you know I need to bring about this you know huge report just to like make sure that the university actually acknowledges that this is an issue on campus. So, um, something that Martin and I talked a lot about in our, in our discussion before was the fact that university can be a really transformational experience. Um, mm. It shouldn't, and, and we hope that it is for most people, you know, that, that studying and, and having your peers and learning in that environment from experts, that should be a transformational, mm. wonderful experience. It shouldn't be something you're surviving just to get the qualification yeah. so you can, you know, go into the workforce. It should not be about surviving. I wanted to ask you, based on this work, what would you most, what change would you most like to see within the University of Melbourne and within the university space more widely? So if you had yeah. kind of one, one first step or first um, movement forward in this space, what would you like to see? listen to students and constructively engage with them. Kate, that was a really fascinating conversation with Mohammed. And I wonder what you have to say to account for what his experiences have been and the extent to which you think they illustrate dissonance between his actual lived experience and what so many of our universities say about how they aim to and are fulfilling a mission of inclusion and social justice. Is there a mismatch here and why is there so such a mismatch? I think, Martin, it just reiterates the conversation we were having at the beginning of the podcast about how important the student voice is and how much we need to listen to the experiences of students. So the university may well believe they've got the policies and, and programs in place that are offering support and assistance to students from various equity groups and from various lived and living experience groups. But what the students are saying and what Mohammed indicated in that conversation is that that is not filtering down to the actual student experience on the ground. And when students are saying, well, this is actually my experience and I want you to listen to me and understand how this feels and what, what the impact that that has had, the universities are reticent to listen to that. Um, and I think that's a problem. I think that's a big problem. Um, I think, you know, and I alluded to this before, but as we talk about the declining of numbers of students enrolling in bachelor's degrees and um, we have to look at the reasons why and it's not only because of the you know the job market being much much more open and there being more job opportunities but if students are worried about experiencing sexual assault on campus if they're worried about being excluded because they're culturally diverse if they're worried about um about how they're going to afford to to pay for their university degree into the into their late adulthood 
Well, we have to look at all of those things. They're layered. They're a layered experience of why students are not pursuing education, uh, pursuing higher education in the same numbers. Um, and I think the reflections of a student like Muhammad are indicative of that. He's had an experience of university and not felt listened to and not felt understood in that space. Well, thank you very much for ensuring that he's getting listened to through the HEDEX podcast and having someone as so um, as concerned as you and as skillful as you in helping articulate that story and and amplify that story and, and extend that story into policy decisions. So, look, a university's accord here in Australia has, has run its course and we'll get a report and we'll get some... You already told, told us what you think about the process. <laughs> we'll all have some things to say about reports soon enough. And I dare say we'll continue to have advice about how it should be implemented. But if we're going to really address issues like those experienced by Mohammed, what, what would your thoughts be about what the post-report publication implementation processes and issues need to be? to try and address the problem that you're articulating for for us in Australia, but in other parts of the world in how they undertake policy review and try and improve their university systems? And I think I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record because I think it's once again about conversation, about listening. It's about engaging in tr real conversations, honest conversations. You know, I'm a little bit scared of being too honest in this conversation with you, but but how else do we how else do we enact change unless we are willing to talk speak the truth about about what students are saying what students are experiencing what staff are experiencing i think we have to we have to take note of the numbers of first nations academics leaving universities saying i can't work in a place like this this feels unsafe to me and change has to come from that. We have to listen to these voices. I think that is the only way. That is the only way we will change higher education and universities for good is to listen to what people want and listen to what they're experiencing right now. Well, there's some very wise words, Kate. And look, you've been a fabulous co-host for us on the episode today. And you've introduced us to a fabulous guest in Mohammed. I mean, taking all of this back to where the interview started... I guess you you're going to sound like a broken record again because maybe I'm I'm drawing on the same passion that you've articulated so clearly but if 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 everyone was to be able to look back on their experience with universities as staff and students with that that joy and happiness that you did from your growing up in the places what would your parting words be to us of your of overall what your vision is for how how all universities in the world can be seen as places that are welcoming to all of our students and staff and and match up to the experience you had. What, what in summary do you think is the difference that can be made and the changes are that we need? I still really believe that university can be a transformational experience. Uh, I'm, and I think that the key to making it a transformational experience is is ensuring that people feel they belong in that place, that they are welcome, that they're included, that they belong there. Um, and that is about the interaction of a lot of different factors. That is people feeling connected to the university, people feeling supported within that environment, uh, being able to dream 
being able to imagine careers and be supported to achieve those those dreams. But I think people have to exist in the day-to-day. They have to get to university. They have to have somewhere to live. They have to pay their fees. They have to eat. (laughs) They have to do all of those things to be able to have that transformational experience. But I think fundamentally what I'd love is for all universe, all Australian universities to sign up to welcoming universities. Can I commend you for that invitation? Can I encourage all universities to take up that invitation? And can I thank you, Kate Gilpin, for being such a fabulous guest on the HeadX podcast and wish you and welcoming universities well in your mission to also support that changing higher education for good. Thank you very much, Martin, and thank you for all you do in this space. It's fantastic.